Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Create Your Bliss with Nika Annan. Today we have the wonderful opportunity of talking to Frank Hadley Murphy. Frank is a master of tea, which we probably won't talk about today, but we might, and an author. And one of the, he's currently working on a manuscript, and that's what invited him here today. So Frank, tell us what you do. Who are you? What do you do? Well, thank you, Nika, and thank you for having me here today. Um, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I've been here for 40 years, and for 30 years I've been washing windows at private homes around Santa Fe. And the reason I've been washing windows for such a long time is because it's very quiet, and uh, usually I'm by myself during the day. I work by myself. And if I want to, I can pray um, all day long while I'm washing windows, and sometimes, as is often the case, if no one's home, I can pray out loud. So it's um, I've done lots of different jobs in the past, and this is something that I very much enjoy doing because I created my own life around it, designed my own life around my work, and can take lots of chunks of time off during the year. That's wonderful. It is. I'm sure people love having you come and pray around their house. I've heard that. And clear the, let the light in. <laughs> let the light in, yes. Some people say it lets more light in the house in a... It's nice to have people tell me that um, it lifts the energy in the house. Uh, having clean windows, they can see better and lets more light in. I, I hope that it lets more light into their hearts as well, hearts and minds. I'm sure it does. <laughs> uh, should I just continue on yeah, here? Yeah, continue. Tell us about um, this book. Well, this book is documenting numerous mystical experiences that I've had since I was a little boy. And um, I never knew exactly what they were at, at six years old. Um, I certainly would never have known to have called them mystical experiences. I didn't know what that meant. But, um, and it's only just recently that I've been considering my, calling myself a mystic, but not publicly. And really, all that means is someone that has mystical experiences and um, Whatever that means to people, I've never really defined it, although I probably will have to for this next book I'm writing that documents all these experiences. Uh, because there's all types of mystical experiences. Some people might consider paranormal phenomena mystical experience or psychic experiences, mystical experiences. Uh, but there's so many different types of experiences, uh, different categories of experiences that... Um, um, it's almost an open field as to how you define them. So what, is there a thematic thread through yours? Do you have a, an experiential definition of what your mysticism is? I don't have a definition, um, but um, 
Well, maybe I should tell a little bit about my life so that your audience can understand a little bit about where I'm coming from. Um, let's see. Um, graduated from high school in uh, North Quincy, Massachusetts in 1968 and joined the military at that time during the Vietnam War, but I was not in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I was uh, trained as a medical corpsman mm-hmm. at that time and uh, was stationed in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, and um, Morocco, actually. Oh, wow. uh, Newport, Rhode Island was very close to where I'm from, Martha's Vineyard Island, off the coast of Massachusetts, so I was very lucky to get stationed there. Uh, but I saw, at that time, I began to see death for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I got out of the military as a medical corpsman, uh, it was easy for me to get a job in various hospital settings. And I became a surgical scrub tech, which is the person that hands all the instruments to the surgeons uh, at Boston City Hospital during the racial rioting in the early 70s that was going on there. So basically I've seen probably over 100 people die, Uh and uh, both in emergency rooms where I was an orderly and in the operating rooms, actually the operating theaters of Boston City Hospital, which is now called Boston Medical Center. And it was a very old hospital, and uh, there were actual theaters there where the professors uh, of surgery from Harvard, which rotated through the big teaching hospital, right. would lecture about different procedures that they were doing to the people above us. So um, uh, that's where the more dramatic, unusual experiences, mystical, I don't know, I think this is more paranormal, this mm-hmm. particular type of experience that I'll ex- uh detail now would be um, I would be uh, in the middle, this happened during front, uh, four frontal brain lobe uh, frontal lobe procedures of the brain wow. where I was uh, fiddling with my instruments and all of a sudden I saw uh, these many different colors moving around on my instrument tray on the instruments, on the stainless steel instruments and so I looked up and there was what I, what was I don't know what it was the soul the astral body if you will of this uh, man that was having his brain exposed uh, so we could what do they call evacuate what's called a subdural hematoma from a blow to the head Mm -hmm. it was all trauma work that I was doing at the time so I looked up and there was these multicolored cloud like floating on the ceiling of the room and that happened for times very distinctly during frontal lobe brain procedures Hmm. and I was 24 at the time Uh, and from there things just started to happen um, more dramatically as they're happening now at 66 uh, as I age the experiences are becoming more dramatic and more numerous and certainly certainly more profound so um, things uh, the more dramatic aspects of my life began then and um, um, and it just kept on going. And then in um, 1985, I lost six members of my family all in one year, um, one of whom was my first wife. And uh, there was a lot of phenomena happening around the house then after she passed away. The classical mystical experiences when you have um, not particularly related to the passing of an individual, but... Um, the first four nights after she passed away, 
um, my bedroom filled with a white light. And I knew exactly what it was, but you still get up and look to see if there's someone right. coming down the driveway <laughs> with their high beams on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I knew what it was. It was this beautiful white angelic light that was very transporting, transformative. Aww. And I knew that it was her sending me love because there's a uh, a beatitude in the Bible that says, um, uh, blessed are those that mourn for they shall be comforted. Mm-hmm. So I felt that she was sending me um, things to comfort me at that time. And because I was having so many mystical experiences that time, I decided to explore um, the religious life in a formal setting at both the Monastery of Christ in the Desert in Abiquiu, New Mexico, oh, wow. and also in um, a seminary at uh, Sophia Divinity School, which at that time was in San Jose, California. I wasn't uh, I wasn't raised Catholic, but um, my first wife was. Uh, sort of intrigued by Catholicism, even though she was Jewish. And uh, we started to go there regularly. Mm-hmm. But I was more interested in the terrain of where this monastery is set, uh, deep inside the Chama River Canyon. It's beautiful. Yeah, in the uh, Santa Fe National Forest. My at the end of landscaped it. Pardon me? My father landscaped Oh, it. I remember you telling me something yeah, about that. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time there as it was being That's built. right. I remember you telling me. That's yeah, wonderful. It's oh, it's place. just extraordinary. You know, the the uh, road is at about 6,400 feet above sea level, and the cliffs rise to above over 8,000 feet. It's uh, And multicolored clay cliffs that you would find mm-hmm. in Utah are all there, too. Yeah. So... Um, so when my wife died, in uh, we had talked about this a long time. When she passed away, uh, she died at home. Yeah. Um, when she died, uh, I prepared her body. Mm-hmm. I dug the grave in the backyard. She didn't want to be buried in a coffin. So um, I dug a stairway down into the grave. And I put her on ice, basically, until everybody arrived there from the both coasts. Uh, she came from a very... Um, prominent Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Her uncle was Isaac Besheva Singer, who got the Nobel mm-hmm. Prize in, I believe, the early 70s. Um, anyway, so uh, I carried her in my arms down the stairway before 50 people, and uh, we all said prayers and wished her well, and we all helped to bury her. Bury her. And uh, that and I, we all went inside. Actually, I did the service at the grave once it was all filled in. And we all went inside and had a wonderful meal. And it was a very difficult year because I did lose five other members of my family, my mother and and several other immediate. So it was um, an amazing year. Uh, What a lot of people don't understand about death is that uh, the only way out of that profound, kind of profound loss is to go through it. A lot of people don't want to experience a lot of their emotions, um, especially in spiritual practices. They'll come up, and I'm particularly uh, have proclivities toward, um, I'll call it spiritual athleticism, which I'm attracted to intense spiritual practices. Like right now, I'm doing a series of twelve fasting vision quests in both Death Valley in March and in Canyon de Chelly in the fall. And these have been the most uh, 
uh, productive uh, spiritual practices I've ever done. So, um, but you know, you start off trying to do some of these practices without a teacher and you can get into trouble. For example, when I was 23 or something, I was working at Boston City Hospital at the time Mm -hmm. and I was practicing with moving energy chi through my body. And um, I basically overheated my uh, reproductive system, if you will, and overheated myself, and I became sterile. Oh, wow. And um, so I still have use of my reproductive system, but I just cannot have children, so my second wife and I adopted several children. Um, Anyway, um, so as I'm getting older... Uh, again, these experiences are getting more dramatic, and I think the most uh, the most dramatic of them all have been these what I call uh, ecstatic seizures that Rumi talks about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where you're totally consumed with love, and I, I you know, it's uh, it's not cosmic or universal, although um, I helped to it helped me to explain it in those terms. Uh, But what happened was I had about 12 of these episodes where uh, my whole body would be filled with love. And uh, it was like soft flames going through my body that would uh, incinerate uh, everything, including my personality structure, my Mm -hmm. ego, my mind. Uh, But the most uh, amazing things was I could feel this love actually burning my synapses in my brain like the fuse on a dynamite stick. And I felt at the time that I was being groomed, if Mm -hmm. you will, for something more to come. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that later. Um, But uh, it was like the love inside of that was happening inside of me during these episodes was burning everything up uh, to prepare me for the next uh, experience of love. And... um, it was almost like I was being lifted off the ground and dragged forward during a number of these episodes. They would happen in the middle of the night while I was asleep and wake me up. Mm-hmm. They would happen as I tried to write about them and describe them, articulate them. Um, but they would certainly uh, change my life. And um, so I started to do these vision quests. Um, and... The, the thing about vision quest uh, now these are based on Lakota tradition, but they're not as harsh as the Lakota tradition. They're sort of formatted for we white people, right, if right. you will. <laughs> so the main thing about vision quests is you have to formulate an intention about what you'd like to have happen during the vision quest. So I asked spirit or the universe. Um why I was gifted on my life with these mystical experiences and a voice came back right away and said, well, it's time to give back. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to pour your love, that love, into the world to help the world. Don't have any expectations about it. Don't have any attachments to it at all. Um, Don't direct it anywhere. Just pour it out and we'll do the rest. Now, I'm not talking about a prayer that goes something like, oh God, please help Johnny with his toothache. This is a visceral transmission where you let your whole body be filled with love and then give it out, give it away. 
And I'd like to back up a little bit talking about those ecstatic seizures mm-hmm. that I have. The love, I would experience my whole body being filled with love and having these fires burn up everything in me. But then there was a switch and the love would just pour out of me into the world where I happened to be living in a wilderness setting at that time as I am now. But then the love would just pour out of me and it wasn't, it's really interesting because my heart had nothing to do with this experience of love. The love that was pouring out of me was pouring out of every cell in my body. Mm. Every cell in my body was being modified or changed by this love. And um, so it's, it's, it's easy to have intellectual ideas about mystical experiences. It's easy to um, explain it with words. But you have to understand that a lot of people have fanciful notions about mysticism, spirituality, enlightenment experiences. But I'll say this, then this is very important, that the greatest um, impediment to the mystical experiences and our own spiritual growth is the mind, the human mind. Because um, the mind, um, it's because logic... Uh, in deductive thinking and cognitive deductive reason and cognitive thinking don't work in these settings. This, these uh, that doesn't work in the numinous world, which is basically the mystical world. Yeah, they're very incongruent. They are what they measure is not what's there. <laughs> no, so my experiences, all these experiences that I have, have been visceral, mm-hmm. tactile, sensate. Nothing to do with the mind. The mind tries to grapple with it because it's challenged by what's going on, but it has absolutely nothing to do with these experiences. It's only afterwards that you begin to try to understand these experiences that you begin to use your mind. So I've also been gifted in being very grounded Mm -hmm. in my life. Uh, Astrologically, I'm a Capricorn Taurus, 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 which is total earth. And I was basically raised on the beaches of Martha's Vineyard, which <laughs> I spent a lot of years just laying on the earth, <laughs> on the beaches. Uh, well, and, and close to the water, too, which yeah, really fed you. It did, indeed. I, um, you know, I'd just lay on the beaches there until I got hot and started sweating. Then I'd go in the water till my lips turned purple and come in on the beach and lay down in that sand. Mm. And I'd start the whole cycle and did that every summer for about 24 years. Oh, how fabulous. Um, but uh, the other, you know, I've had so many experiences. I think I'll just uh, tell about another experience. I had this prophecy dream. I called it a dream vision that happened to me when I was living in Cambridge, working again mm-hmm. at Boston City Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I'm not surprised that I had a lot of these experiences at Boston City Hospital because I was seeing people born and people die almost every day. Um, there was, I had a dream vision when I was living in Cambridge, um, that, um, I would be led across, I would be going through this, uh, desert experience. And then at the end of that desert experience, or so I thought I'd be led across the desert to the shores of a lake that lay beyond. Uh-huh. And I was just had the fulfillment of that pro- prophecy a couple of years ago. I just figured this out, that the lake that I was um, going to be on 
was uh, Lake Pomacanchi um, in Peru. Oh, wow. So I was sitting there. There were a group of us there sitting on this lake, which was a pre-Incan shrine, a spring. And uh, we were with a bunch of shamans that came from a lineage of the Kanchi people, and they spoke, I think it's Quechua. And they were there were five shamans there that my wife works with in Peru. And there were a group of us, and we were all sitting at this lake, and one of the shamans came up to me and handed me a stone if, if, as if I knew what to do with it. Well, I did know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about it. I just went ahead and did it. And what that meant was I just laid it on the ground and put my palm on it. And what happened was that love poured up from the earth through the stone up my arm mm-hmm. and filled my whole body again. And it was my first direct experience of the divine from the earth, direct experience of the earth. And um, so that changed my life too. So my prayer that I just described, this gift that I was given to pour my love into the world, to help the world, eventually morphed into pouring my love into the earth to help the earth because I love the earth. And again, it's not a, it's, it can start out as a mental mantra until you begin to embody this prayer, this practice, and then it becomes again what I call a visceral transmission. The other thing that I want to get into a little bit is my experience with tea. And the tea that I'm talking about is China tea, specifically from Yunnan province and specifically from single estates. I had both formal training and apprenticeships both in the United States in San Francisco's Chinatown and in China at the Tea Research Institute in Hangzhou, China, which is like Green Tea Central. It's where the uh, People's National Tea Museum is in this prestigious tea research institute. And the thing that got me interested in tea was comparable to the experience that I just described as having my first experience of the divine through the earth, this experience of love. Uh, My first experience of tea came in uh, December 31st, 1993. It's, It's one of those... types of experiences that I'm describing that you always remember when it is and you remember exactly what happened to your body, how your body transformed in an instant as a result of one of the experiences. Um, A friend of mine had given me a tea called Puar, that's the Chinese translation, the uh, pronunciation, the more Americans pronounce it as Puer. (laughs) Um, So I had this, a friend of mine um, gave me this tea and I um, was, found myself home alone one day. The kids were at school and my wife at that time was out doing something. I had a moment of silence, so I decided to try this tea. And I just cooked it up, you know, with tap water and a tea ball and just had some. And I brought it to my lips and as soon as my lips broke the surface tension of that brew, my whole body filled with the essence of the leaf, and I became acutely aware that I had something very different in my body and that I had better uh, pay very close attention to what was about to happen. Mm-hmm. And there was a voice, I assume it was the tea plant, that said, okay, it's sit down and be quiet now. So I sat down at the kitchen table and began to have all these opening sensations 
in my tummy where the tea kind of pooled as a hot fluid. It pooled down on my pelvic floor and kind of spread out. Mm -hmm. And then as the chi began to rise in my body as the result of the chi uh, in the tea, um, yeah, the tea was a very yang, puars are very yang teas, very mm-hmm. dark and powerful masculine teas, and they begin to rise in your body, the chi. So I began to have all these opening sensations in my um, uh, pelvic floor. Uh, and then as the energy of the tea began to chain, uh, rise, I began to have opening sensations in my heart and in my mind then. Um, so I asked my acupuncturist, who interestingly enough uh, lives here in Santa Fe and who was born and raised on in a very well-known tea district in Sichuan province around these holy mountains that are covered with monasteries. And I asked him about this experience and he said, oh yes, tea has the capacity to mobilize stagnant chi in occluded meridians. Wow. Uh, so that's basically what was happening to me. And um, now I describe that as uh, my first experience of the divine through the plant kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm basically from the 60s, mm-hmm. and um, where there were drugs everywhere at that time. And uh, I, I experimented a little bit, uh, but I was way too sensitive for to experiment really much at all. So tea was my quote-unquote drug of choice, if you will, at that time. Mm-hmm. And that was just the first of many experiences that I had with tea, which I document in both of my books the Spirit of Tea, and my second book, Tea Fried Brain Notes. <laughs> it's called, no, the subtitle is Notes from St. Camellia's Church of the First Infusion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, so, um, um, you know, it's just, I've been very blessed and very gifted all my life with all these experiences and so as I began to look at all these experiences from my next book, which is called A Mystical Life, um, I know that I'll have to define uh, my terms eventually. Um, and it's been very challenging to try to do that. Well, I have a question because I hear that there's a deep eclecticism mm-hmm. in where you're willing to receive these messages. And where you're willing to receive spirit or divine or the well, that's wonderfully put, Nika. How do you mean eclectic? Um, I know, I know that what you mean by eclecticism, but an eclectic space is inside myself where I'm, where I'm receptive to receive it. Where you're open to the message without judging the form that it comes. Yeah. So that you're not saying, oh, I was brought up in this tradition and therefore I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. So I experience it, therefore I am it, I feel mm-hmm. it, I participate, mm-hmm. I give from it. How do I share it? Well, that's wonderful, Nika. I'd never really thought of it in those ways. Okay. Well, I loved your, um, I loved you putting it that way. Um, because my traditional or formal religious and spiritual background has indeed been eclectic. 
But I also like what you say about the multiple points of receipt, if you will, the multiple points in my constitution that allow me to receive these particular types of information, if you will. Um, And that has a lot to do with um, having been raised in almost an entirely feminine environment Uh and then working in obstetrics, gynecology, and delivery. So I've always had uh, proclivities toward uh, a well-developed feminine side and um have always been told so mm-hmm. and um so that's one point which is in and um and part of the Taurus. oh a yeah very well it's also all about beauty and most of the decisions i've made in my life really have been about beauty mm-hmm. yeah simple i've never had the dreams that most people have of going to college getting a job raising a family having a house i didn't have a family I did have a house, but um, when my wife and I adopted three children, they were all special needs. Well, we didn't know it at the time, uh, but they all turned out to be special needs, and that in itself is another trial by fire, as was the six deaths in my family. Yeah, this combination of... Well, that's an interesting, another... The deaths and and really knowing death and being familiar with, with people crossing over. Right. And then to have people for whom life is a struggle. Right. And I also have to qualify that and say that I've also had two near-death experiences. I don't know mm-hmm. if we have time to get into sure. those, but uh, but let me back up to okay. the eclecticism. But the let me just say a couple of things about near-death experiences. You Once you see many people die, including your loved ones, you become familiar with death and it's not so scary. You know, I love the thing that Woody Allen said about death. He doesn't mind dying. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) So, um, but the first experience I had was actually at the moment of my wife's death where I wanted to die with her. And I had to retrieve myself from doing that. That was terrifying. The second was in an eight-day death lodge I did at Death Valley where I just was so exhausted basically from having to maintain an ego Mm -hmm. and a personality, if you will. Mm -hmm. I saw through that. And I just basically laid down and lifted my soul, lifted off my body for a brief period of time. But it was was exhilarating. And I realized that the joy that I was feeling from this experience would end up being the legacy that I left my children in the future when I did die or anybody that was around when I did die. So now to get back to this eclecticism, um, I I guess I can say that I was raised in the Christian Science Church, which Mm -hmm. was started by a female, Mary Baker Eddy, who was basically a psychic healer. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my clients here in town, Val Kilmer, the movie star, is doing a movie about um, the relationship between Mary Baker Eddy and Mark Twain. It was not an amorous relationship, but Mark Twain had never met a woman like Mary Baker Eddy, and he really thought she was brilliant as as well as being uh, a woman the type he'd never met before, and he was fascinated with her. In oh, fact, wow. uh, yeah. So, um, despite all the weirdnesses you hear about, you know, not using doctors in the Christian Science Church, my family never got into that, even though my 
aunt was very much involved with the mother church in Boston mm-hmm. uh, and worked for the Christian Science Monitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she li- outlived all of her sisters and never took even as much as an aspirin her whole life and never saw a doctor. Um, so there's something to be said, but that Christian science really was about mind over matter, which, you know, the mind is really a powerful tool. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I, I, you have to have a mind in order to function in the world. So, and, and a personality structure for that matter. Yes, both of those are very helpful. So, um, so I was basically, even though my mother likes to say she, we never joined the Christian Science Church, I did have that exposure. Right. But I liked the idea of having the woman, a woman head the church. So I, um, I had begun to have these sensations uh, at six where I realized that um, something was watching over me and protecting me. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I became sort of self-conscious at six and seven and eight. And I began to realize that I was watching myself a lot at those, during those years, every movement from how I was picking up my spoon at the dinner table to how I was putting food in my mouth. So I had this sensation of, and I never knew what it was until just recently, always had this sensation, uh, a feeling that I was always being protected. And then no matter what I did, I would, it would always be all right. Mm-hmm. So it was a, an amazing sense of well-being at a very early age. But at 12, I basically said no to the mystical experiences and closed down to them, literally um, hardening, tightening my musculature. Uh-huh. Uh, to close down to the mystical experiences from the age of 12 until I was 24. And simultaneously, my best friend had just uh, joined uh, the Jehovah's Witness religion, mostly as a result of his father's uh, command, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that was on Martha's Vineyard Island in 1962. And... so we would have these theological arguments at 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at that time an atheist and going through this long desert period mm-hmm. of from 12 to 24. And uh, so, but then at, uh, at 24, I began to be interested in, uh, let's say, the, the I Ching mm-hmm. and uh, Taoism. Mm-hmm. And so I began to open to those I began to open to spirituality and that's when I had the experience of the vision the dream vision that came to me the prophetic dream and the experiences of seeing the auras and then as I said before the experience just flooded the gate it's like the the watershed year probably just as well you weren't tuned into that maybe during some of the other periods yeah well I was very during the period of from 12 to 24 I was also uh, a loner Mm -hmm. I was very much uh, living in quiet and solitude during those years Mm -hmm. so I I was had this exposure to the Christian Science Church and then at 24 I began to explore Taoism Mm-hmm. And I was already a poet at that time and a musician, mm-hmm. which helped me to articulate some of my experiences. And the Chinese period is sort of still going on because of my um, my 
primary teacher is Roy Fong of the Imperial Tea Court in San Francisco's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, um, his, his teacher on the other side of the veil uh, is the same teacher that I have. Uh, one would call it a spirit guide, mm-hmm. but I remember, and he's a, a, an active Taoist priest as well as being a tea master, but he's not, I mean, the tea masters are a dime a dozen, mm-hmm. but Roy Fong is not only recognized by the Chinese government as a tea master, but oh. also by the American tea community. And that's quite an extraordinary title. It's a title that's uh, bestowed upon one by a community. Um, so I've worked with Roy Fong for 24 years and traveled with him to China on several Beautiful. occasions to do two-week tea intensives in the field. So I have this long history with China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began to look at, at Taoism, mm-hmm. and I've also flirted, if you will, with Tibetan Buddhism and studied mm-hmm. that for a while here in mm-hmm. Santa Fe. And then because of my first wife, I began to look at Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, in seminary, I had to go into it and study it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I began to realize that um, uh, I began to, to be challenged by the three Abrahamic religions at that time as I began to look into them and feel them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the three of those are, of course, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. I got sort of an alternative Jewish education marrying into such a prestigious Jewish family as mm-hmm. Isaac Beshev's Singer family, of whom my wife was a niece. Um, so I began to look deeply into these religions and found out that um, uh, they weren't for me. They didn't feel right. There was a lot too much dissonance in my body right. about these religions. And I began to even think that they could have been capable of inhibiting human evolution. Mm -hmm. And that's as radical a statement as I will make at the present moment. In my books, I'm permitted to get a little bit more radical about my beliefs. (laughs) So I basically... Because, yeah, I think it's very... uh, I I think you have a point there. So I laid all that down and began... uh, Because I was continuing to have a mystical life... Um, I wrote my two books on tea and uh, decided to put tea down. And I I was talking all over the the, the United States at different tea symposiums and uh, um, conferences. Uh, my first books being published in China. I was on Chinese television. So I sort of made my mark in the American tea community. But it began to be uh, too much work. And I didn't want to put so much emphasis into a name that I'd created for myself. So I basically let the whole thing go mm-hmm. um, and declined several invitations, six to be exact, to speak at various other symposiums and convocations about tea and to explore um, this mystical life that I've led. So that's what I'm in the process of doing now. And uh, again, documenting them and writing them down. And um, go ahead. I yes. have a question for you. I'm wondering what you feel that, um, or think, or the role that mysticism plays in our in human lives. 
what is that? <laughs> all, all those religions and many other, many other religions are sort of more mystical without a lot of the trappings dogma <laughs> dogma yeah and some you know even the ones that have very strong political socioeconomic strength in the world have although they may not own it overtly they have a mystical side yes they all they, they all do you have to dig a little bit to find them, but they certainly all do. I have to I give them credit for that. So what is that? Is that? I think specifically, and I'll get right to the point, mm-hmm. I think it has to do with agreement and agreement that we make with ourselves before we were even born. Uh-huh. I think that we're all, we all have a mission of some sort. It's like our own personal mission, the mission of our soul. Mm-hmm. And I think we make that sort of agreement with, maybe ourselves before we come in to being born. And I remember talking about this to friends when I was in my 20s and not really having an idea what I was talking about. But it's only been just recently that I understood at 66 that the reason why I came in was to pour my love into the world. And that has catalyzed my entire being. Mm -hmm. uh, Concretized and focused my entire being into this prayer and it has changed my life because the prayer is so powerful that this practice I should say I don't want to mislead people by using the word prayer the practices uh, any practice of this magnitude and power is is uh it changes your physiology in order to accommodate it mm-hmm so not only do the mystical experiences change my entire being by burning myself out, by not burning myself out, but burning a lot of things that didn't need to be in there. But um, this practice that I'm doing now, just pouring my love, this, again, I have to emphasize it's a visceral transmission, mm-hmm. um, has literally changed my chemical I don't know what else, um, chemical structure, I guess. A physiology would be the easiest term to say to in order to accommodate, to go deeper and deeper into this practice. And everybody's everybody's agreement is different. Everybody's mission is, is different. But for me, my whole life has um, rotated around, um, in my early years, it was my poetry and my music. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a well-developed intuitive sense as a result of having this developed feminine thing. And I always valued more of the insights that I was having from the spirit world than I was, uh, than the, than the dreams of, you know, going to college and, and, uh, you know, having nice cars and all that sort of thing. Um, so I always basically designed my life around, uh, my creative self as a poet. And it's interesting because when I stopped, when I said no to the mystical experiences at 12, that's when I started to write poetry and, um, play music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's so sort of the music and the poetry carried me over those 12 years until I began to, until the floodgates opened at 24. But that's also a very deep gift because you developed some skills and some practice and some tools Yes. in that process. Yes. And I think it's so helpful, and it may be one of the reasons people build all this elaborate religious structure. 
it can be helpful to have some of those tools when this Absolutely. energy starts coming through you. Absolutely. To have a few vocabularies. It is. To yeah, I told them a, with. a woman once, uh, she was a Chinese woman and she was had just been a convert to Christianity. And I told her that, you know, it was really important to uh, start somewhere. Mm hmm. And to begin in some of these religions. Uh, and then once you sort of got it, there would be a period of time when you needed to just go off on your own. Leave that behind when you had reached a point of saturation, even if you will, or frustration for that matter. Right. And to go off on your own and to begin to call out to the universe for uh, help mm -hmm. and healing. Now, I have to tell you, as a mystic, I don't believe in God. I don't mm -hmm. believe in the Western idea, and I put that in right. quotations, idea of God, because that's what it seems to be, little more than an idea that's debated back and forth. Um, I've never been able to relate to the Christian experience of God, mm -hmm. because I've had so many of my own. Mm -hmm. And I don't really gravitate toward fanciful spiritual notions such as karma and past lives. I've had a past life experience and I've had karmic experiences, but I don't spend a lot of time there. People say, well, I must have had a Chinese back, you know, a Chinese past life, or I must have had good karma to have lived this charmed life, as people say that I have. But I don't go there because... I'm sort of too busy. It's, 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 again, a fanciful notion for me. And I can't get into wasting my time with those because it puts me in my head. Mm -hmm. And once I'm in my head, I become ungrounded, mm -hmm. uncentered, and uh, sort of flaky and spacey. And if I disrupt my connection to the earth, I feel that dissonance immediately. That's beautiful. I think that the earth is a living, sacred being, and so the more we stay connected to her, the deeper we experience being here, which I feel very deeply that the opportunity to have a life is an incredible gift. Absolutely, especially right now when the earth needs our help. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's an amazing time to be alive, and that's why I think I was told to pour my love into the earth. And at the same time that I was given that, you know, initially, again, it, it came as to pour my love into the world. At the time that I got that uh, directive, mm -hmm. um, I also had the feeling that thousands of other people were given that same assignment. So I wasn't alone in this being gifted with this. And I think that because I had that experience of the love pouring out of the earth into me, and because I had those ecstatic seizures that, that Rumi talks about, mm -hmm. um, I began to realize that love was the, um, uh, was the what to call it, the binding force of the universe. I had uh, I, one, of the, one of the ecstatic seizures of love um, showed me that... Um, it's not the God particle that the high energy physicist should be looking for at CERN in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. It should be the love particle. Mm -hmm. Because the experience that I had, the vision that I had during these seizures, 
uh, showed me that we're all we're all made of love. The atoms are held together by love. The whole universe was created out of love, not light necessarily. I'll make that delineation mm-hmm. right there, mm-hmm. though they're very similar. Mm-hmm. One comes from the other. I'll go as far to say, yeah. but um, it's a type of love that uh, predated our species. It's a type of love that predates the earth. Mm-hmm. It's a type of love that predates the universe. Mm-hmm. So I would be uh, willing to tell the scientists I studied. I was going to be a particle physicist when yeah. I was in high school. And so I sort of know a little bit about what they're doing. I keep up with particle physics. Mm-hmm. But I think instead of going after this Higgs boson particle called the the, the God particle, which sounds very nice mm-hmm. and very charming and evocative mm-hmm. and alluring, yeah. I think it would be more important to go find the love particle because um, I think that love is this uh, what's called the unified field theory. They're always talking about the unified field theory of bringing these all these energies together, the strong force, the weak force, electromagnetism, uh, gravitation, and so forth, together under one heading. And I think that heading would be love. It sounds a little fanciful, talking about fanciful things, but my experience in my body of love in such profound uh, proportions tells me that that's somewhat accurate. Yeah, I agree with you. I that there is a sense that it is the connective generative force or mm-hmm. essence or whatever because I don't know. I don't think it has to be an either or. I remember listening to a show on PBS once talking about string theory and when all that was first coming out and string theory. String. Oh, the string theory string stuff. Theory. Oh, yes. And the guy said, well, this is, and started talking about multiverses. And he said, but we can't go there because we're a monotheistic culture. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to have in a science show. Well, maybe he was monotheistic. Yeah. It was a very interesting overt statement. I was, because it had been one of my arguments with, you know, if you're truly practicing inquiry, you leave the preconceptions aside. Of course. Of you course, know, if you're if you are gathering evidence, then you have to let yourself disprove your your hypothesis. It's the whole point of science. Well, you end up experiencing yeah. your disproving. Your, your you end up experiencing uh, the absurdity of some of these doctrines and dogmas and hypotheses. Mm-hmm. I think the most exciting thing for me that's happening in the in the United States is that I really foresee some sort of birth of new spirituality. It's already happening, not just in the United States, but it's certainly one of the centers of this new burgeoning spirituality that incorporates a lot of tribal indigenous First Nation Aboriginal mm-hmm. people's um, cosmologies. Um, we're going back to the earth in a different way than we were in the 60s, us hippies back in those days. (laughs) We're not just going out and planting gardens. We're feeling the love pouring out of the earth. 
We're feeling guidance and direction sometimes as what the Christians call that still small voice or what the Quakers call leadings. Mm -hmm. Those intuitive insights, those epiphanies from the earth as a sacred being, as Gaia, as they call it, her, Mm -hmm. coming from the earth to help us understand what's going on. But she certainly does need our help right now. And again, I feel this uh, very exciting birth of something i'd hesitate to call it a new religion but it's some sort of understanding of spirituality that we can all experience and all have wonderful times sharing those experiences of what's happening to us all because the veil is getting thinner between us and the spirit world that's mm-hmm. been I've experienced that, witnessed it. Certainly millions of other, I hope millions of other people (laughs) have have as well, where the spirit world is becoming more available to us. Mystical experiences are becoming more more available to us because of this veil getting thinner. For what reason? Probably because the earth is making a kiss. Maybe the whole cosmology, the universe, I don't know who or what, but it's definitely getting thinner. And uh, it provides access to for more information for us to heal ourselves, uh, to soften our hearts, to um, heal ourselves and other peoples. And I really am excited about what's going on on the planet because of everything. So many things are available to us now. Uh, if we and here's probably the punchline of my whole talk here. If we just sit down and be quiet and make a receptive vessel, it's like uh, sitting down and being quiet. Um, you naturally create a receptive vessel inside yourself for things to come in there. Mm-hmm. And if you're invoking, supplicating, inviting things into those spaces, then you shouldn't be surprised at what comes in. It may not be what you had thought it would be, but the simplest thing I can say is um, just sitting down and being quiet, uh, miracles start to happen. The mysteries flood in. And, um, you know, a lot of people try that and they say, well, I, I can't stop my mind. And, you know, it's really not that hard to stop your mind when you just bring your energy and intention down into your body. Mm-hmm. It's not your body that thinks and is so active and alluring and seductive and distracting. It's your mind that's like that. If you can bring your energy, attention, and awareness down into your body, and I'm not saying focus anywhere, just go down into your body and feel. By feeling, you become more available, more vulnerable, and fragile. And again, you go, it's the the best place to be to be able to receive the messages that you need to receive as a human being. Because we are spiritual beings. And that was, you know, we we have this profound uh, uh, part of ourselves that we really haven't uh, nurtured very much. Um, Certainly in the Western cultures, that began in Greece, you know, with the whole, all the Greek and Roman things. That's Western man, I think, has had been more challenged spiritually. Uh, but that's all changing, and a large part of that has to do with the the return uh, 
resurgence of the divine feminine. And you're seeing that all over the world, too. Yes. It's almost like, in a literal, quite literal way, we're seeing women uh, assume their roles of authority all over the world. Yeah. Thank goodness. It's about time. It's a deep change, and I, I think it's a very... Yeah, very profound time to yeah. be here. Um, so we have a few minutes, and I wanted to ask you if you would be willing to share a prayer or a visualization or an invocation with us as, mm. a, as a closing. That's mm. Well, I'll share with you a, a prayer that I do now regularly that was translated for me. It's uh, from the shamans in Peru that my wife works with. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was uh, given to her in Quechua, and then it was translated into Spanish, and she, my wife translated it into um, English. And so some of the words are in Quechua, but I'll try to translate during the prayer. Um, and I address myself to uh, a gentleman named Kanchi Machu, who is uh, one of these spirits of the mountains in Peru. Mm-hmm. Um Kanchi Machu, and then I add mine. I've supplemented and modified it to mm-hmm. fit my own mm-hmm. uh, piece with everything. Um, Kanchi Machu, Creator, Father Lightning, Spirit that moves through all things, you who have put me here to walk this sacred earth, guide my comings and my goings. Give me your light and give me your power. With your light and your guidance, miracles will be in my favor. The spirits and the natural world will listen to me and obey me. My body and my energy will be fortified so that I may continue to pour my love out into the world. Pour my love out into the world. Pour my love out into the world to help the world because I love the world. Aho. Aho. Thank you <coughs> very much, Frank. And I invite you listeners to pour your love out into the world, too. Thank you. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.